Some help! Please! Coming up on a special edition of Harvard Chan This Week in Health, preparing for disaster. We take you inside the intense three-day simulation that trains humanitarian workers to respond to disasters around the world. The life of a humanitarian worker is not a comfortable life. And so if people can't do this in the field, then they can't do it at all. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Monomiro and it's Friday, May 13th. And I'm Noah Levitt. When disaster strikes, humanitarian workers around the world spring into action. Whether it's an earthquake or a disease outbreak, they'll be on the ground assessing the situation and developing plans to rebuild. And for more than a decade, the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative has been training these workers. But classroom instruction only goes so far, says Stephanie Caden, director of the Levine Family Humanitarian Studies Initiative at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. When we have these students in class, we teach them how to do this work in paper simulations. And I can tell you that it's one thing to do this on paper in a classroom, and it's a completely different thing to be able to do a good job saving people's lives when you're tired and you haven't slept well and you're cold um, and you're under time pressure and it's raining and you're under a lot of stress. And the life of a humanitarian worker is not a comfortable life. And so if people can't do this in the field, uh, then they can't do it at all. And that's why the simulation is so important for the training. And that's why every spring, Harold Parker State Forest in North Andover, Massachusetts, is transformed into the fictitious nations of Warani Nigundu. Noah, you recently spent a weekend observing this simulation, is that right? That's right. And before we go any further, we want to tell you that there are certain aspects of the simulation we can't tell you about. And that's because a key part of this training is making sure that the students are surprised that we'll have to face each year. So with that out of the way, let's take a short trip. The route to Warani winds through the bucolic roads of Harold Parker State Forest, dotted with trees, lakes, and hiking trails. Pull off the road and you'll find yourself at Warani Airport. A few hundred yards away, a parking lot has been transformed into a UN compound. We just have to do one of these per site. Yeah. So here's the scenario. The simulation is centered on the border of those two fictitious countries that Amy mentioned earlier, Warani and Agundu. A civil war has forced many Agundans to flee their country, becoming refugees in Warani. The tension between these two groups is then heightened by a natural disaster. And that's where the humanitarian workers come in. More than 120 students, representing international non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, will use the UN's cluster system to perform a needs assessment. Basically, that means that the students will work in small teams to address specific areas, such as health, food security, or water sanitation and hygiene. And that's sort of the the first thing that happens on the ground when a team arrives. They're basically going around and coordinating with other groups to just figure out what's going on and what needs our help, what needs our supplies. And the important thing about a needs assessment is that um, you do have a lot of groups you have to coordinate. You have to really triangulate data because you're getting talking to a lot of different people. Um, but this is going to ultimately inform our um, service delivery plan, and that's when we ask of the donors, so the USAIDs of the world, like, here's the money that we need um, because we're going to do this, this, and this with it. And if we don't have good information, then that service delivery plan is not going to be um, solid itself. That's Alex Castora, a student at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. The needs assessment is really the first part of a disaster response. What are some things you want us to tell them? That we need food and we need safety. That means counting refugees, assessing their health and security, and determining which areas might be susceptible to disease or violence. They also learn basic skills, such as the best way to build a latrine to avoid the spread of disease. 
And that needs assessment that Costura and other students are performing is just one part of the simulation. By the end of the weekend, they should have a plan for responding to the crisis unfolding on the border of Warani and Agundu. Here's Caden again. So many people assume that after a disaster, if there are refugee camps set up, that that's a situation that's going to last weeks or months. The truth is that the average refugee is a refugee for 17 years. And that means that when we set up refugee camps, they're meant to last years. So by the end of the simulation, we expect the students to have developed a fully budgeted, detailed plan for the provision of all services to this displaced population for an entire year. The students have previously done this in class. I think they find it a little more difficult to do out here in the woods amidst the distractions and stresses of uh, a simulated humanitarian response. So how do you inject stress into a simulation? By keeping students off balance. Everyone comes and they say they will bring things, but no one does anything. Everyone only asks questions. That's really frustrating on your parts, and I, I understand that. But we need to get an understanding of what's going on so that we can communicate and talk to people so that we can bring things in. I think the most difficult thing is trying to talk um, to the refugee volunteers because they're doing a very good job of the kind of reporting fatigue that there's so many people asking them questions that they don't want to give us any more information. That's Rebecca Frank, another tough student who participated in the simulation. Frank and many of the students say working with refugees was incredibly challenging because they had to find the right balance. How do you get the information you need without interrogating the people you're supposed to be helping? And Amy, one of the things that impressed me as I observed the simulation was the ways in which these actors playing the members of a militia or a refugee really embraced their roles. You know, at times you would see the students were legitimately unsettled or even thrown off balance by something a refugee said. And the HHI staff really managed to create a detailed and complex world in just a few days. One of the people responsible for creating this simulated world is Brian Daly, the Assistant Director for Education at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. It's really a year-long process, so more or less the moment we finish a simulation, we already start to plan the next iteration. The framework of the event is kind of like planning a very large wedding for a number of guests who are coming into town from all over the world, or maybe think about a destination wedding. And that means coordinating more than 250 students and volunteers who will be camping overnight in the state forest. It also means getting the scenario right. It's hard to replicate the stress and chaos of a real disaster, but Daly says that the simulation is a valuable way to bridge the gap between classroom work and field work. The most valuable component of this for the students is being able to practice what they learn in the classroom under pressure. I think it's the actual environment that they're put into, which is a safe place, yet stressful, that is that sort of uh, catalyst for internalizing some of, some of these skills. We are with ICRC, and we are looking to... And that's especially important for students who want to take on leadership roles. Enzo Bolatino directs a program on resilience at HHI. He says the simulation trains future humanitarian workers to think flexibly and creatively. There are many challenges that they're going to face. Each one of these people will face in actual field situations. Uh, part of it is uh, organizational skills uh, and management skills, but part of it is being able to uh, troubleshoot, problem solve, uh, identify which members of their team have the right uh, skill sets for, for which problems, and putting those teams together in a way that best suits the problem at hand. 
Um, part of it is their being able to analyze um, and really diagnose uh, a problem before simply acting and using uh, sort of cookie cutter frameworks to apply to problems that really require some sort of adaptive uh, look. And so what we've done here in the course is to provide them with the opportunity to take a look at those things uh, and figure out the best way to ap apply a particular framework to a particular set of problems. And there are lessons to be learned for people who might not be working for NGOs. That's why this year, sailors from the Naval War College participated for the first time. Getting the exposure to non-military is essential. I mean, it's because it's a, it's a dynamic that you can't replicate. That's Joe Rutledge, who leads an 11-week course on operational-level war planning at the Naval War College. And that basically means preparing for disasters or other humanitarian situations. Rutledge says this simulation exposes sailors to a different dynamic, especially when it comes to working with NGOs. Getting the exposure uh, on both sides of the, of the story here, uh, for our students, there's a lot of eyes opened as far as the, the level of uh, enthusiasm, the level of uh, just genuine interest in, in impacting uh, and having a positive impact on events. I think that brings a lot to our students who are very focused on we're going we're gonna to solve it. We're, they're geared, they're hardwired sometimes to be problem solvers, and uh, they're very comfortable going in and solving a problem. And uh, what they learn out here is you don't go in and solve the problem. You go in and you, you talk about it. You engage. Uh, you have to understand the sensitivities of the different organizations, and you only understand that by actually having the engagement. The staff and faculty at HHI told me that one way they know the program is successful is because former students often come back to volunteer after they've worked in the field themselves. That includes Michelle Nishirenko, Director of Global Health at Boston Children's Hospital. During the simulation, she was overseeing a skills exercise in the village of Terra Cativa. And so we bring teams into what is a dangerous situation for them, as well as a stressful situation that uh, has a lot of pressure from media, from the villagers, the refugees that they're interacting with, to try and force them to make a decision under high stress. And that decision has major implications for um, their own safety and security. Nishirenko has a wealth of field experience. She worked along the Turkey-Syrian border and recently played a critical role in responding to the Ebola outbreak in Liberia. She says students in the simulation learn a key lesson, which is how to work as a team even if you've just recently met the person next to you. Teams in the field, you know, you may be deployed somewhere and join a team that just assembled 24 hours before, very similar to the situation, and are instructed to solve a near impossible problem in what's a dangerous setting. And so I think this gives them just the smallest window of how difficult it is to do that. Many of the teams have reported, you know, they were here to interact with our population, and then this stressful situation unfolded, and it caused them to have competing priorities, uh, which is very much like the field. The competing priorities of assessing, providing aid, keeping yourself safe, um, I think is really replicated here and it's very important. And that is the crux of what the team at HHI is doing, giving that small window into another world. It's incredibly difficult to predict how you'll react when you arrive at a disaster, but the simulation teaches the students important lessons that they can't learn inside the classroom. A lot of people find that they are really surprised at how they behave in the simulation. When we end the class and come to the simulation, people think, all right, I know all of this and I'm ready. 
and then they get here and I think they find themselves surprised at some of the things that they do that they never thought they would do and some of the things that they say that they never thought they would say. And the simulation ends up being the perfect way for people to realize how they cope with things in the field and how they really put their knowledge to the test. And that's Stephanie Caden, the simulation director talking about how students react to the simulation. A decade after it began, this is one of the optimal ways to train humanitarian workers. And according to Caden, it's more important now than ever before. Disasters are on the rise worldwide. And the world is facing um, increasing not only numbers of disasters, but severity of disasters that force people from their homes. And those people who've been forced from their homes need help. The world relies on humanitarian workers to provide that help. What we are trying to do with this simulation is to professionalize uh, aid workers worldwide so that they can better help the millions of people who have been forced from their homes by tragedy. If you want to learn more about the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, just visit their website, hhi.harvard.edu. That's all for this special edition of Harvard Chan This Week in Health. We'll be back next week with our usual rundown of public health news, including a closer look at violence in hospitals. And if you want to listen to any past episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you're a fan of this podcast, we'd love you to take a few minutes and leave a review.